Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, features writer for craft and special projects at IndieWire. On today's episode, I talk with Alejandro Gonzalez Inuritu about his latest film, Bardo, which stands alongside Fellini's Eight and a Half and Bob Fosse's All That Jazz as a great surrealistic epic about an artist in crisis. I had a great time talking with Inuritu about how he tried to express his subconscious through technical means and how he found cinematic representations of his emotions by fictionalizing them. We also talked about the meta experience of him returning to Mexico while making a movie about a character who was doing the same thing, using wide lenses and large format photography to provide geographical and historical context, and a lot more. I hope you enjoy the conversation. The scale of this movie was absolutely mind-boggling to me. Like I just when I watched it the second time, I just sat there wondering how you kept your sanity during it, which I also wondered when I saw The Revenant. So, how difficult a production was this physically and mentally compared to that film? Did I kept my my sanity? I don't think so. <laughs> well, I think that was uh, was a uh, was a different challenge uh, uh, in many levels, but uh, it, it was it was difficult because it required to get into the the technical aspects once I was clear what I wanted to 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 convey and what to make people feel and how to get that. And what I'm talking here is that the fabric of this movie is different from any other movie that I have done. So, I mean, there is no story, there is no structure, there is no plot point. This is just a, a mental landscape of a character and uh, that come from the last moments of his life. And, and all these kind of dreamlike kind of perception to convey that and to flesh that out, to, to materialize those images or feelings and emotions and memories was very difficult to get to. In terms of emotionally, what is emotion that we are trying to convey and the idea, the concept, and then how technically and the requirement, the physical requirements to make that happen, uh, it was an equation that I have never confronted in my life before, you know. Well, and I was thinking even just at the writing stage, you know, how do you and your writing partner approach something like this that doesn't have the traditional signposts of genre or plot? You know, with Nicolas Giacobone very early, uh, 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 basically that was kind of the, the idea, you know, kind of, uh, you know, in the 70s, I loved these albums that were concept albums, right? And there was no singles, there was no division, like like the Pink Floyd albums or or Jess or Genesis, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway and albums like that or the David Bowie ones that they were telling a story and the, the songs were blending and it was just an atmosphere, a mood, a dream state and a story is kind of subjective, you know? Um, so in a way, the idea was always that, that we do not have necessarily uh, uh, act one, act two, act three, to not build and construct something but to liberate, to, to in a way erase the boundaries and borders between genres and, and, and you know, you know corpamentalization of things, you know. And uh, so the, the way it worked for us was that I had, it, this film required from me much more than others because I was trying to express 
things that I have not solved, things that I have to overcome, experiences, dreams, memories that did not make sense, but they were telling me something that I did not understand, that were absolutely mysterious, but they were coming up and were affecting me. And there was no story. I mean, because all those things are very elusive and they transform and, you know, memory does not exist. We build it depending in the way we are in our system of beliefs, depending where we're born, depending how we are doing at that moment, psychologically, emotionally. And uh, so for me was to detect these things that I consider were crucial or important and uh, lay them there as an ideas. And then these ideas became sequences that we transform it in sequences individually. And then the blending was the magic or the hard work, how those things will make some sense without making sense and just create a cohesive, emotional kind of journey that has some sense. Yeah, well, and it also, you know, there's there's not any boundary even between, like, the intimate and the epic. I mean, the movie, that's kind of the way I would describe it almost, is it's an intimate epic. And I'm wondering, in terms of just balancing, I guess the fascinating thing about this movie is I just, I, I watch it and I can't really figure out how you did it. Like, I watch it and I think, you know, did you go in with any kind of, intellectual strategy for figuring out how to connect these things or is it purely intuitive it's absolutely came from the unconsciousness and you know completely the subconscious and unconscious whatever you like i'm i'm, I'm very fan of jong and i think we cannot uh, subestimate the power of the subconscious you know it's a it's the, the relentless amount of involuntary memory that just explodes, and it's a great source of imagination and creativity, which meaning is not necessarily rational or to be understood. It represents something bigger than the fact, you know, and that's what I was interested. And it's funny that you mentioned the, the intimate and epic because for me, when I was putting all these things there, like, you know, uh, very, uh, you know, the, for me, this film was always very intimate moments. I never saw it as an epic film, ever. Even actually, I never considered that it would be so big. Because when I was writing, I was just concentrated in what it means emotionally to me, with no seeing, like, the next step, which is how I'm going to materialize that and how you're going to make, how you're going to flesh that out later, is that's a process. But in the writing process... For me, it was a very intimate things that make sense for me that then all these events or memories or fears or traumas, in a way, I start to fictionalize them. Because, I mean, they were not literal, right? They were basically represent. I, I tried to cinematically start when I when those things were kind of these ideas or emotions to try to get them to a sequence. I use fiction to really transport that and betray reality in order to find something higher than that. I didn't care too much about the facts I was, or the chronological order of the facts. I was just more interested in the truthfulness of the motion of that and how I represent it better. So fiction is a great tool because it elevates the things and reveals what reality is hiding you know so this fictionalization helped me to get these things expressed through fiction 
And the very personal thing, I think the more personal the thing it is, the more universal it is. If you use fiction, that's, that's alchemy. That's what artists do. So when that happened, suddenly I saw that some of the scenes, when I start planning the film, they became <laughs> epic. Not that I wrote it epic, but suddenly, yes, I said, well, you know, you know, Silverio comes and people is falling. He's feeling fear to disappear as 130,000 people has disappeared in Mexico in the last 10 years. So I wanted to convey the emotional reality of that feeling of the character through walking in downtown and having that traumatic number of people and that thing that has been, it's a wound that Mexicans we have. And I didn't want to really now again go into the uh, literal violence of that reality of seeing people being kidnapped or not. I didn't want to rely on that because I have seen that many times. I wanted to interpret it from the psychologically fear that one can have and how to interpret that. And when I realized that I have to do that, then I said, oh my God, I need a lot of extras. Oh my God, I need these dancers that has to collapse. Oh my God, I need, you know. So then, but the event and the amount of people is a huge event that I, you cannot do that very little because it's a huge amount of people and it's a huge event and it's a huge wound of a country that has to be portrayed in the size and in the measure that really deserves, you know? Anyway, so that's how it became intimate and epic at the same time. Well, that sequence you're talking about, uh, another thing that really is amazing about that scene is the sound design, the way the sound design puts you inside that character's head. And really throughout the movie, the sound design is just used brilliantly. Um, talk a little bit about what kinds of conversations you had with your sound designers and sound mixers about what the kind of philosophy was in terms of approaching sound with this movie. I'm very, very happy and satisfied and proud uh, of the sound of this film. I think the team was the best team I have had in my life. First of all is Martin Hernandez, who has been my friend since I was 18 years old. He has been sound, uh, we work in radio together. And he's a brother and he has been uh, doing the sound design of all my films. But in this film, we thought, both of us, that we need for this particular film, because the, 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 because coming from the subconscious, we need something, some element that will help us to navigate that. And Darius Conji is friends of Nicolas Becker. And Martin has worked with him in one uh, film of Guillermo del Toro before. So Nicolas came and then I saw... Um, the Sound of Metal, which he did an amazing job. And Nico came on board and added to the team with Martin. And it was an amazing kind of uh, collaboration because Nico come from these sound installations with artists. So in a way, he's aware of not only narrative uh, things. And because this film is not, is, is not a conventional narrative film, it, it again is just blur the lines of things, and he has worked in these kind of installations that are just about atmosphere and mood. Um, since the beginning was how a dream sounds, you know, that was the question always. And I think the folly, follies became huge because uh, Nico is a folly artist. So suddenly I was trying to get to the use of sound, which is raw. And uh, the, the frequency of sound differently from the images. The images, we always have to interpret them. We have to 
we, we see juxtaposed images, slice of images, and our brain has to process, rationalize it, and, and they become, depending on where you come from, your system of values, your origin, that it comes on. But audio is a frequency that hits your body. It's a primal kind of sensation. It doesn't need interpretation or rationalization. And the body doesn't lie. Your ears doesn't lie. So we wanted to be basically with these folly things that Nico and Martin did and all these sound design that suddenly have layers of foreground, middle ground, and background sounds that they are shifting in the ear and in the perception, changing the, 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 the perspective of it, and suddenly isolating some sounds. And Jack Staty always came to my mind, you know, like somebody who with one sound can tell you a state of mind. And that was kind of the reference, you know. When you're doing a movie like this that's kind of springing from the subconscious, what kind of discussions do you have with your cinematographer, with Darius, early on to convey what this movie's supposed to be? How do you, I mean, in general, how do you get your collaborators on the same page and seeing what the movie's going to be? Or is that more something that you all discover together as you're shooting? No, this film, differently from others, um, I did a lot of uh, pre-production, a lot of preparation, very disciplined. The most demanded, uh, I would say, pre-production I have had in my life. This film was pre-produced two years in advance. The reason I need precise locations, and again, because the material and the, the, the emotion and the atmosphere, I wanted the audience feel as if we were in the mind and the memories of this character that I want the point of view of the film will be from that source of memory and of consciousness, not an objective narrative of a story told by the director and, and events. No, this was more like a mood, like a dream. I needed to really find exactly precise things to convey that. So all the locations were already set up. And with Darius, when Darius came in, Darius immediately and I felt that this has to be a radical film. That was what how we call it. We have to make radical decisions because it cannot be like in the in the middle, because dreams are not in the middle. And uh, and uh, what we what we decide was that something that was very present always was that the constant movement of the camera. We were trying to emulate like life is in constant movement. Music is in constant music. It was kind of a musical kind of atmosphere that through the movement, it started conveying and transforming in different emotions and light changes that transmit you different sensations. So the constant move was something that was always uh, discussed. Uh, in a way, it was a theory to approach, to serve the emotion of the film. So the technical approach to that was wide lenses in order to give context to the character because Mexico became a character. I want that he is affected by what he left, what, what he missed. And what he missed, what he left, I want the people to understand the scale of his memories, the city, the streets, the dance floor, his apartment, his belongings. So I want to feel in this scope, so wide lenses, constant movement, very slow movements, and shifts of lights, all constantly with very bouncy light, with no aggressive thing. So that was kind of, and then we saw a lot of palettes, you know, uh, photography books. 
So there was some great artists and painters as reference, you know. Del Boba was one. Magritte was another. Kiriko was another one. Uh, Vivian Mayer was another one, you know. So we have a lot of reference of colors and palettes that we want to to figure it out. You know? How did you come to work with Darius on this uh, instead of Chivo? Was Chivo just not available? Too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> no, he he was already committed to another project. You know, so, yeah. So in a way, I think it was, and and it, and it was great. I think it's I think it's fantastic. I I miss Chivo in, in many ways, but at the same time. Having Darius uh, in this film was uh, a gift, was an incredible privilege, you know. For me, it was to find another brother in my life, too late in my life, but uh, I'm so happy. I mean, he, he was, Darius is a painter. You know, every detail uh, that you see, you see every frame of the film. Everything is thought uh, in, in detail, like every palette, every texture, every source of light. And, to be honest, technically, this was a madness film because shooting with these uh, 17 millimeters lenses in a 65 millimeter camera, you have to hide every, you see everything and the camera is moving constantly in 360 degrees. So how to hide those lights and, and, and that they don't look harsh and they are just bouncy and softly and, and, and elegantly and natural, it's, it, you, you require master. At, you know, at that height of Darius Conchi. I think few few DPs can do what he did, in my point of view. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you mentioning the, you know, the use of Mexico in the movie. How did the, that mirror what that character is experiencing there? How did that mirror your experience going back to shoot in Mexico for the first time in years? Or, or how, did, how did that experience of shooting kind of find its way into the DNA of the film? It was a meta experience for me because I was going through exactly what the character was going through. In a way that, you know, the, the city and the country that I left is not the same. And I am not the same person that left that country. So, you know, always a, a, an encounter or re-encounter and the expectations of it, you know, can bring some disappointments. And at the same time, a lot of surprises and joy, but at the same time, contradictions. It was full of all that. And, uh, and prejudice. You know, uh, so expectations, you know, we, we, we have in our mind what we want people to be or what we imagine they should be or what they want, what we want them to be, you know, in, and vice versa. And you have to adapt to that. And uh, so it took time to integrate for me to understand the way it's, it's there. It, now it's working there and they have to integrate in the way I wanted to work at this time. But in the middle, there was a lot of all these misunderstandings and things. And it was funny. But at the same time, all those things and experiences what was informing me that the script was absolutely right. You know, because I think all the people in the world that, as me, has left their country, if you live it for a long time, that's inevitable. You, 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 you feel that you, don't, you are from there, but you don't belong there. And... Uh, you know, so it, it's it's funny because you can, and at the same time you you are one of them, but it's weird. There's this thing that you can take a kid and you can you know move a kid from his country, but you cannot move the country from the kid. <laughs> you know, you the country stays with you even if you geographically are dead. But when you remember, there's something missing. Anyway, but it was beautiful. I have to say that for me, I was two years in Mexico between pre-production and shooting. And it was a great recouping experience of my own roots and my own culture and my own city and my and who I am. 
for a film that's this personal and intimate, uh, how does that affect your the way you work with the actors? Uh, you know, particularly your lead actor here. Again, you know, just incredible performance. What kinds of conversations are the two of you having, and what kind of environment are you trying to create on set to facilitate his best work? You know, I, I have an incredible connection with Daniel Jimenez Cacho, which is probably the best actor in Mexico, and he's very well known. He's great, uh, you know, he's a great actor. I knew I knew that, but I haven't seen him in a long time. We have a dinner with uh, two bottles of mezcal, and we spend hours, and suddenly I found myself connected with him in a cosmical way, almost like in a spiritual way. So, I mean, we are from the same generation. He has my same age. We have been married the same amount of years with the same kids at the same age. And in the time that we are in our life now, hitting 60 years old, we are in the same kind of journey, interest, points of view. Uh, in a way, you are in a way back. You know what I mean? I think that, that, that there's a learning process, a growing process, and you start leaving things. You have to surrender and start to be detaching things. And 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 we find ourselves in the same journey. And uh, And he told me a couple of things of some meditation practices that he's doing that we are both interested in that for many years. And he told me a couple of scenes that were exactly as in the script. And he has not read the script. And I said, holy shit, this guy is the character. I knew that beyond his incredible skills as an actor, he was the guy. And I... I didn't want him to read the script. He asked me to read it. He read it only once. I said, please don't rationalize it. Don't prepare it. Don't, don't construct the character. The only thing you need to do is to be present, to be honest, to be aware. And don't. You know, my only direction with him was do not react. Just respond, which is different. And just, just observe the things that are as in a dream. Because the film is a lucid dream. And this means that you are aware that you are dreaming. So the character is aware that he's dreaming. He's half awake. He's in coma. He's in that. And I said, you're just observing things. You, you, you are not reacting. And he was so present and so aware of every single thing. And the most beautiful thing, because people say, oh, he's you. He's imitating you. I said, I laugh. He and I laugh. I never, he, I, you know, we never talk about that, and that was not my intention. As I said, obviously, this came from a very personal thing. It's very intimate, and a lot of things happened to me and my wife and my kids. And some of those are very intimate and very things, but I share it with millions of people. But I, in the moment that I fictionalize, fictionalize it, what Daniel do, and he has been saying this in his interview, is that he took all that material, and he owned it, and he worked it with his own experiences, their relation with his father, their relation with his kids, the adolescence of his kids, his own insecurities, his own battles with ego or success, his own losses in life, his own enemies and friends. And, you know, so he was going through his own personal experience. And that was incredible, beautiful, because that's what I felt that then, then this material was absolutely universal. You know, it can relate to everybody. And he has a mother, too. You know, my mother is going through dementia. You know, so a lot of particular things, you know, it can be attached to many people in the world, I think. So he make it hit some. That, that was beautiful. You know? Well, and that idea of him being present in the moment, not overthinking it. You know, I wonder if that's helped by your tendency toward these sort of, you know, elaborately choreographed long takes, which I think as a viewer are always really effective. Like they always kind of 
suck me in. There's something very hypnotic when you do a long, you know, a, a scene where you're not cutting a lot. And I wonder for an actor, I, you know, I used to think for an actor that that's very challenging because, you know, of all the, the technical issues and that all the pressure that's on them. But now I'm kind of wondering if in a weird way, what do you think it gives an actor when you shoot scenes the way that you often tend to shoot them, where you're not just covering cut, 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 and, you know, kind of allowing these scenes to play out. Uh, it, it's it's a wonderful, I will say, approach that I have been uh, um, practicing since uh, Birdman by a very, very precise need that I have to tell that story in one take, again, because the point of view was from the mind of some character. So in a way, I was serving the point of view of the film, which as a director is, 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 is not a technical device or or like, oh, look how skillful I am. I don't care about that. I'm trying always with Chivo and even with Darius, always like try to hide the virtuosity of it. I don't care about that. Who cares about technique? Technique is very easy to, to do it. So, I mean, you can learn it. That is if it's serving the purpose of the emotional source and flow of the film and the character points of view and the experience of, of him, and I have been practicing this technique that is I block the scene early on, even with standings, just to understand how the camera and if they are standing, if they are sitting, if they are the, the space between, the silence between, how those decisions, which uh, my, my teacher, my theater teacher, Ludwig Margules, which was an incredible genius Polish teacher, theater teacher in Mexico, he said, the life of a director resides in the decision if the actor should be sitting, the actor should be lay, or the actor should be uh, standing up. That's the question, to be or not to be of a director. <laughs> and he was right. I mean, those decisions, in a way, inform the energy and the belief and the how real, how the, the, the dramatic tension of a scene is built on this incredible physical, architectural, the architecture of a film is made of that. So I tried to find that architectural decision before. And then when the actors come, I share with them and then I allow them to really have, feel comfortable in that and then make some adjustments if we need to. But then the camera movement and the movements of all that is absolutely you know, set up. We rehearse. They own mechanically, and the, the muscles' memory, you know, retain that. And once they can do that with the eyes closed, the beauty of this technique is that then they liberate themselves from the thinking about steps here and step that, or my mark, I have to be there. Once they own it and they can do it sleeping, now they can focus in the motion. And in a long take, allow you to suddenly go deep and be very honest and get rid of the technical stuff and just be honest emotionally. So I think that's the technique that we use here, you know, which is very beautiful, satisfying. I'm not now into the moves. I mean, by some reason, I did a lot of, you know, classic close-up, close-up, over the shoulder, over the shoulder, two shots, master, you know, I mean, so, but I think that language for me, I, I, I'm in a pause and I'm trying to explore some other possible uh, you know, grammatic uh, grammar, you know, cinematic grammar that can explore other ways to to tell a story, you know. So anyway, this, I, I think this battle is a combination of Birdman and Revenant. I, all what I have learned in a way I try to apply here, serving the purpose of what I was trying to do, you know. Mm -hmm. And 
In terms of the editing, you know, you mentioned what a long pre-production period this movie had. Uh, what was the post-production period like? Was it a film that had a lot of challenges in the editing room? Not really. I mean, I had a very, very, very long <laughs> first cut. Uh, I think uh, I, I'd leave out uh, a lot of scenes and sequences that were very beautiful, and I liked them a lot. But I realized during the process that they were not serving the whole. So you have to kill your your darlings, as Faulkner said. And uh, that was painful. But rather than that, yes, I think for me the, the most challenging thing was that the visual effects arrived very late. And I didn't want to show the film without the visual effects finish. So I was very lonely with Monica Salazar, my, my co-editor in the room. And I didn't have the chance to see the film with people. And I think a film born when you show it in a, in a theater room with, I don't know, at least 30, 40 people, that's where really the, the magic and the alchemy happens. And I didn't have that chance. The first time that I saw it was in Venice with 2,000 people. <laughs> and I immediately recognized that I have an opportunity to thin out this. So it took me three weeks to really just get in, and it's exactly the same film, intact, essentially. It's just thinner, in a better shape, you know? So it was, it, you know, in a way, it, it just took time to, to, to identify which scenes will be out in the first period of the film. I guess maybe that's what I want to wrap up on is the visual effects issue, because I thought the visual effects in the movie were great. Uh, but I'm curious how you communicate with a visual effects supervisor, you know, something like that. It seems to me that's one aspect of the filmmaking process that is, you know, can get out of the director's hands quite easily because you're sending it off to some, I don't know where the people are that are doing the effects work, but how do you, what kind of conversations do you have and kind of retain your control over what you're going to get in terms of the effects? I think um, these case require a very specific style in the visual effects because they were not, I will say, explosive or fancy. They were really almost, I wanted to be like paintings, like disappear. So in a way, I think with uh, uh, MPC, which I think all the team at MPC here in London, they did a good job. It took a lot of time to really get it right, that it doesn't look cheesy or doesn't look um, that got your attention. It has to be very sophisticated. And because the light was very precise, we did a lot of plates, a lot of, uh, of pre-production. This film was, every frame was, storyboards, every sequence. I have never storyboard something like this. So if you see the storyboards, it's basically the film, and it's very beautiful storyboards that make a guy in Mexico called Edgar. So what I'm saying is everything was pre-planned, but to get to that quality of matching the lighting of Darius, it's not easy. You know what I mean? So I think the success of a visual effects is the lighting direction and the knowledge of what is not working and why. And to detect that takes a lot of time and, and trail and error. And tra it's, so it took a lot of that, but it was, it was a very sophisticated process that was very clear what we need, but to get there. Uh, it, 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 it took a lot of a lot of time, precision, you know, to get to the style that we wanted to be, you know. Well, you know, as a fan of yours, I just loved this movie so much, and I, you know, can see what you're saying about how it, it encompasses what you've learned on Birdman, what you've learned on The Revenant, what you've learned on all your movies. You know, for me, this is probably my favorite of your films, and I'm curious for you, what feeling you're left with? I mean, where do you go from here? Do you know what 
you're going to make next? Um, not really. You know, I, I'm really, really satisfied with this film because, again, I think that I took, it took me a lot of, you know, it took me a lot of time to make this film. It was five years. It's, it's, it's it, you, you feel in a vulnerable and fragile kind of position. But uh, at my age, only I have learned to start leaving the fears out and to have the courage to say what you need to say the way you want to say it. And the courage to be dislike. <laughs> I think to get to that point, it takes time. And, uh, and to share honestly what you are, what you feel, you know, what you, what you think, no matter which position you are, that's only, that the only thing that I have is, is what, I, what, I, what I am. I cannot hide that. that can, I cannot divide. So this film allowed me to suddenly, for the first time, to get um, deep in introspection and bring up things that I wanted to share with no fear and try to get out in a, in a cinematic language or a, in a cinematic exploration as a filmmaker. I didn't want to be trapped in a level like, oh, the autor, the, this scrutinized autor thing that you have to make the same film to be recognizable. And I want to actually always explore and challenge myself and do exactly what I don't know how to do it. Or actually I want to do something that I know that I could fail and badly, massively. And probably, you know, I did it in this one, but that's that's better. It's better to attempt that than not attempting it. And that's probably what I will try to do next. But not because of that, but I will say that this film get me to a place that it was very cathartic. It was very healing to share that and see how so much audiences around the world has been moved and suddenly identify impressively with this material that in a way by being personal as I said is so universal so suddenly I feel less lonely you know I feel understood I feel you know hurt I you know and and uh, and, and talking from my own perspective get me this very beautiful feeling that having shared something that I needed to I need to make this film and I'm not chasing films, so if you ask me what I'm going to do, I'm going to go back to my life, which I missed a lot, and I like a lot my life. <laughs> I'm very lazy, and I enjoy a lot of things. And normally I take three, four, five. I haven't done a film in seven years. So maybe it's going to be another seven years, five, four, or maybe, I don't know. But what I love is that I think when I go back to my life, something comes, like a seed that is flying in the air suddenly planted in my brain and if it doesn't shake uh, this doesn't die too often and it start growing then I think a film has to find me you know the, the theme find me and then I take care of it little by little and if it doesn't die then the trees start growing and then I start coming and then I'm addicted and then I poison <laughs> and then I'm fucked I have to do it <laughs> but uh, but now I'm not I'm not hungry at all I have just a huge full dinner and I'm super satisfied I'm not thinking in the breakfast tomorrow <laughs> let's put it that way well it's a, it's a great movie it is a great full meal and I, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time coming and uh, talking to me about it oh thank you very much for having me 